Hi, this is Ben. I don't really do introductions for this podcast, but in this case, I felt there were probably two things that were worth adding before the conversation. So this is a conversation with Mary Elizabeth Sutherland, who is senior editor at Nature and deals kind of with cognitive neuroscience, psychology, that kind of stuff. So we talk about kind of what it's like being an editor and all these kind of things. And at the end, I asked her whether there's anything she'd like to add. And she mentioned that it's probably a good idea to mention that she's not, you know, speaking as a representative of Nature or the Nature Publishing Group or whatever, but that she's speaking as an individual based on her experiences at those places. And yeah, I thought it's probably just a decent idea just to put that in the beginning rather than have it as the very last minute of the podcast. The second part that I'd like to add before we start is that so usually when I start recording the podcast, I have a minute or two in which I kind of just chat with the guests about something random. And then I delete that in the edit and just start with the first question. And in this case, I plan to do the same thing. And I just had a kind of random question about a random connection between her and me that I wasn't aware of whilst I contacted her. And we ended up actually talking a little bit about a study by Hugo Spears that Mary Elizabeth edited and that appeared in Nature a few months ago. So again, initially I planned to just delete that as usual, but then we kind of came back a few times to this study by Hugo Spears and use it as an example. And I realized that we never actually kind of explained what the study is, even in the slightest, and because we both knew what it was. So I thought I'd just spend 30 seconds to a minute explaining what that study is. So the study we're referring to came out this year in Nature. It's linked in the description. First author is Antoine Coutreau. So the very brief summary is Hugo Spears and Michael Hornberger developed this mobile game called Sea Hero Quest. It's a game in which you navigate in this virtual world. And while it's a fun game just to play, it actually provides scientifically valuable data. So it's, it's not only a game, but it's also a cognitive task that you can use. And so this game was wildly popular. It, I think, had more than 4 million downloads or something like that from all over the world, all ages, everything. And because they had such a rich data set in terms of just the demographics of people who did it and where they're from, what they did in this, I mean, there's lots of papers that came out of, and that will continue to come out of this in the future, but the specific study looks at the kind of entropy or complexity of the street network in which you grew up and links that to performance in the game. Uh, I think that's all I'm going to say here. If you're interested, so I've linked the article in the description and I have an entire episode with Michael Hornberger about Sierra Quest and I have an episode with Hugo Spears where we spend about half of the episode also talking about Sierra Quest. So if you're interested in that, I've also got links for those in the description. Anyway, those were just the two small points I wanted to make before we start. And here is now my conversation with Mary Elizabeth Sutherland. Oh, by the way, uh, one question, just briefly, whether you were aware of this. So I always mention like who my PhD supervisor is, just so people, if they're interested, can have like a brief look to get a bit of a context. Did you remember that you edited a manuscript of Christoph Korn once at Nature yes, Communications? Yes, I did. At you Nature did? Communications, uh, okay. yes, yes, yes. Yeah, okay, because I, you know, I just saw a talk of yours. Uh, I don't know, how, this is the funny thing. I have no idea how I found out about you or whatever. <laughs> it's just somehow I ended up watching a talk of yours on YouTube. And then I thought, oh, that was pretty cool. I should invite her to speak on the podcast. 
And then I, uh, you know, told my, my supervisor, and he's like, oh, yeah, she, she edited the initial communications paper. And he actually, uh, I mean, I guess it got published. So, of course, he liked the, direct, <laughs> the job you did. But he said he really liked uh, that you kind of focused on, like, what was what you thought was important about the reviews and that kind of stuff. Good. I'm, I'm always glad when I can be helpful. It's funny because I thought that you had come across the YouTube video because because of that link. So I thought that, you know, maybe you had asked about, I don't know, or maybe you had some kind of thing about, you know, alternative academic careers. And then, you know, your PI was like, hey, <laughs> I you know, I've had experience with this person or something like that. Yeah, no, no, it was, it was, I, I probably saw something you tweet. Oh, you know what it is? Uh, I interviewed Hugo Spears about two months ago. Oh, nice. And so yeah. that was before, so Hugo, um, uh, he's last author on a nature paper that you edited, I'm assuming. Yep, exactly. Yep. Um, and so this was, I interviewed him before the paper came out and he kind of only like vaguely hinted to some stuff during the conversation. Then afterwards he said like, yeah, we've got this thing like at nature and looking pretty good. And probably he retweeted something you tweeted about or something like that. Yeah, that it's would make sense. something like that. It's funny, though, because I actually met Hugo also while I was an editor at Nature Communications, where I handled his papers. And then I was in London and went to visit him at UCL. So it's funny because that connection is also coming from <laughs> from when I was yeah. at Nature Communications. I feel like it was around the time that I had Christoph's paper, too. But Okay. Yeah, but I had, I mean, this was also before I met Christoph. So I had no idea who like the editor was and that kind of stuff. Right. <laughs> yeah. Anyway. Um, so I guess, uh, you know, we want to talk or I'd like to talk about the job of an editor and what you do and kind of especially how to make the life of an editor easier, um, <laughs> maybe make your submissions a bit better, um, all this kind of stuff. But before we start or talk about that, uh, we have to talk about the most natural topic to talk about when talking about editing, and that is the harp, <laughs> an instrument that you, I'm assuming, still play or at yes, least played yes, for yeah. a long time. Yeah, so it's funny. I was just, uh, you know, I always like look on Google and YouTube what I can find about people. And I found quite a lot about the half and you. Uh, you gave a, a concert of Handel's F major concert or something like yeah, that? Yeah, yeah, yeah. At McGill. Uh, so I'm just curious, like, how did you, uh, yeah, how, how did you start playing the harp and why the harp? And The harp story makes a lot more sense than the editor story, I would say. Um, <laughs> okay. My father is a musician, so that sets the stage, literally. And he, so when I was born, he was at the Canadian Opera Company in Toronto. I was born in Toronto. And he used to take me, so I used to listen to music as a young child, and then he would take me to rehearsals. And the best part of that was during the break, I got to sit next to various instruments and really see how they worked. And for me, the harp was just love, you know? I got to sit there. I remember she put phone books so I could actually, like, reach the strings and, yeah, I got to play the harp, and I loved the harp. And so I said, Daddy, I want to play the harp. And he was like, oh, no, why did I bring you to this rehearsal? <laughs> no, I mean, he didn't say that out loud, but I can imagine, you know, he thinks, oh, goodness, like, this is the instrument that she chooses. Yeah. Um, but since I was so young, right, he wanted to make sure, he and my mother wanted to make sure that I was really serious about it. So they said, well you know, let's, let's think about it. And I kept it up for long enough that they got me a little cantala. So that's like a little lap harp. And I played that for long enough and still cared. And then I got the Celtic harp. So that's, you know, what I call the baby harp. And then finally I graduated to the big harp. So yeah, I've, I've been playing harp all of my life. <laughs> I mean, not all of my life, but most I of my life. I can imagine your father's kind of yeah, that's kind of like, oh, why the hop? Because I did, I mean, I did lots of music and uh, I mean, 
I played trumpet and double bass in orchestras and like and piano. Um, oh, nice. But the so double bass is annoying to move, but it's kind of fine. You can carry it on your back, kind of thing. But you know, once I had to help carry a harp from like transport it from A to B, and it's just. I guess like pianos are so annoying that every place has to have one, but harps are kind of in this in between where they're kind of annoying to move, but they don't have them just standing around. So you have to have your own one. Exactly. And as a parent, you can imagine. So not only do you invest in the harp, but then my parents, when I got the the full size harp, they had to buy a new car to fit the harp. (laughs) So, you know, it's like not only do you have the expensive musical instrument, but you have to then upgrade your car to move said musical instrument if you want the the child to actually be able to play it outside of the living room so how does that so i i mean i i guess i know basically nothing about the harp um even though i spent so much time in orchestras i guess the harp was always the other side of the room but there's like different sizes harps right isn't there like a, a really big one or something and then like a big concert harp or something and yeah, so so there is there the, like you know a Celtic harp, which is one that does not play all of the notes. By that I mean the Celtic harp. In order to change a tone, right? Like think black keys on the piano, you have to move a lever with one hand. So that means you have to stop playing with whatever hand and flick a lever, and that lever can only raise the string a half step. So the Celtic harp that I have, I tune in the key of E flat so that I can have some flats and some sharps, right? But I can't have all. Like my E flat string can only be an E flat and an E natural. My F string can only be an F and an F sharp. The pedal harp, which is what's used in orchestras, has pedals to do that. So for each string, you have a pedal that has three notches, um, flat, natural, and sharp. So you can get all of the different tones. The pedal harps do have different sizes, but not so much. Um, there is like, you know, there's different models and the models are different sizes, but it's not like a violin or a cello where you have like really baby ones that scale up. They are generally just all big. So you can have slightly smaller, but it's the, the big difference in size is sort of the type of harp. So I started on the Celtic harp, which is fine because you don't, you know, when you're learning, you don't need really all of the the different options, right? You're still learning how to read music, the theory, etc. And then when you graduate to real music, then you get the harp. So the harp that I have is the harp that I got when I was 12. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay. And yeah, it's funny. I, I actually almost started, I don't know, do you know of the Kora? I don't know whether that's the correct pronunciation. It's no. Basically, I somehow, I, I don't know how I found out about this again, uh, but somehow I came across it and it's basically, they call it the West African harp. So it's, you kind of, I think you kind of, it's kind of like in between your legs, a bit a little bit like a cello, not exactly, but it's a bit like that. And then you have far fewer, I think it's like 20 strings or something like that. And you play that. And I, and I really wanted to play it, but the problem is not that many teachers around. And one day I'll be in a big city and again, and then I'll, then I'll try and play that. Um, yeah, that would be fun. Yeah. Uh, so uh, last question about the harp, so we can uh, talk about the editing. Some recommendations. How do I... So I typed harp into Spotify, and it seemed to be a lot of it was uh, transcriptions of piano pieces by Debussy or Zati or whatever. What's some kind of like good harp music to, to get into it, and maybe or some good performers or something like that? Yeah. So 
I, I'm, I'm particularly biased. So my teacher, Lucia Lawrence, was married to Carlos Salcedo. Carlos Salcedo is a big name in the harp world, um, you know, from, from back in the day. So I really enjoy his performances um, because they are slightly older. The recording quality mirrors that fact. Um, but I really like Carlos Salcedo's work. Um, and of course, Lucia Lawrence, my teacher. Um, Carlos Salcedo, as a harpist, also wrote a lot for the harp. So I really enjoy his pieces. One piece that I enjoy a lot just because it's fun is called Scintillation. And it's, it's by Carlos Salcedo. And the reason that I like it is that it really makes use of all of these harpy tropes, you know, like the glissandos and like all of, <laughs> it makes use of a lot of the fun sounds that the harp can, yeah. can do, um, as opposed to just being this like elevator music type background, you know, beautiful, melodic. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So I really enjoy scintillation because it's just such a fun piece. So and I would I would recommend ha- listening to the version of it with Carlos Salcedo playing it because, you know, he's he wrote it. So it's kind of cool because it's it's his thing. Cool. Yeah, I'll, uh, I'll put if I can find a link to that in the description. And for new listeners, I always put links to usually research papers we talk about uh, but i guess in this case uh, yeah. uh youtube or spotify links or whatever if you want to check that out okay one reason uh, i also wanted to bring up the harp is just because i guess i wanted to kind of uh, yeah kind of trace how you became an editor and from what i understand you did a phd in let's say cognitive neuroscience of music roughly yep exactly um and also performed i think still at the same time uh the harp so how did you yeah, basically, how did you go from that <laughs> to uh, your current position today, which is, um, let me get this correct, is it editor of behavioral sciences at Nature? or? Yeah, I think technically my, my title is just senior editor, but um, what I do is I handle, I'm a senior editor at Nature and I handle papers in cognitive neuroscience, the behavioral sciences and social sciences generally. Yeah, so how did you go from, from harp to, the, to this? Right. I started off really caring about the harp. But as I said, my dad was a musician and I watched him lose his love of music a little bit as it became work, right? So it's not to say that he didn't love music anymore, but it became work. And his what used to be the thing that he loved the most then became a source of stress and difficulty. And I never wanted to lose music in that way. So when I went starting at undergrad, when I went to college, I started not just doing music, but doing music and science simultaneously in order to just be sure that I had other options open. And so in doing that, I came across this field of music cognition. And I thought, oh, that's really cool, because this basically answers the question of why can't I lose music? So why is it that I don't want to lose music? Why is it that this is so important? What is it, you know, what is it doing in my brain? What what makes it so so key? So I thought, oh, this is this seems like a cool question, something I want to study. And look at this, there are a whole bunch of other people who do it. So that's how I got into the PhD. And the great thing about my PhD um, was that it was in Robert Zatori's lab and everybody in his lab played music in some in some sense, right? Again, it makes sense, right? Because if you're going to be a good music cognitive neuroscientist, you need to understand the music to understand what questions you can use it for to understand the brain, right? 
because the the cool thing about music is that it has the intellectual part of you know the syntax of music learning music so you have learning and memory you have the emotional aspects there's all sorts of things you know you have the motor control aspect there's all sorts of cool things that you can you can use it for to get to the brain but to do that well you need to understand the music because if you don't know how singing works then you can't do a good experiment to understand you know how how is it that we learn how to control our vocal cords how does that fit you know to our understanding motor control if you don't understand yeah so anyway that was how i ended up doing that in the phd and i played all the way through so i basically always did music and science but interestingly after having having left the idea of pursuing music professionally and going into science i never really questioned science as a career you know i did it and it was interesting um and i always thought it was interesting but i was never particularly passionate about it you know it was just it was cool it was it was fun you could ask cool questions you could get answers like it was great it also seems like it was a way to do music without losing the interest in it right exactly Exactly. So I sort of followed the the track, you know, I had a good mentor, so he taught me how to look for postdocs when you're a PhD. So I finished the PhD and I got a postdoc. I had a good postdoc mentor who said, you know, you have to be giving job talks because the whole point of being a postdoc is not to be a postdoc. <laughs> like, you know, you don't want to stay. And so I just, you know, followed along. And then it was only when I actually got my first job as a professor that I stopped to think like do I actually want to do this for the rest of my life? <laughs> And I was like no, no, not at all. <laughs> this is not what I want to do. Um and I I honestly hadn't stopped to reflect. It was more just, you know, I was doing it and it was interesting and why not? And so then I got this position in Chile actually and I was at a conference really soon after just getting it like I don't know. So this is the or... professorship. Or... Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. And I went to a conference and I met up with a friend of mine who at the t from from Robert's lab, so from the same lab and she was an editor at Nature Neuroscience. And she was asking me, you know, how is it to be a professor? And I was like, you know, it's really not my thing. And then she was telling me about what she did as an editor and I was like, "Oh wow, that really sounds like my thing." And then she said, well, you know, there's a job that just came up at Nature Communications. And that was that was the beginning of the end. And I've, you know, I've been within the Nature family ever since. Okay, so, yeah, I mean, I guess one question uh, I want to ask at some point, so I guess we might as well do it now. What what does an editor do all day then? Because uh, to me, it, it's, in some sense, I imagine it's, you get submissions, you read them, you spend a lot of time trying to get reviewers to agreed to do a review for your paper uh reading over the reviews and is, is that the basic the most of what you do or is it just the, the part that the scientists see and there's actually lots, lots of other stuff going on no that is that is indeed the bulk of what we do so most of our time is spent with the papers that we actually handle so as you said every submission that comes in is assigned um depending on the journal i'm now going to talk about nature it's assigned based on your expertise. So I get the papers in human and cognitive neuroscience. I get the papers in behavioral science. I get the papers in social sciences. We read them. We discuss them when necessary with our editorial colleagues. We make a decision, you know, is this going to go out for review or not? So basically that part is like a mini review. You know, if you complete a review for a journal, we basically do our own mini review. So we write up our notes on our paper, which starts with a little summary, you know, what, 
what is this paper about? And then our opinions on it, you know, where are the strengths and the weaknesses? The difference between our notes usually and what a reviewer will do is that we don't have the technical expertise anymore. So, you know, I can't go and say like, oh, how you ran this or this particular analysis, because I'm not doing all of the analyses anymore. So I'm not as on top of it, but I can say like, you know, the strength of evidence, how how strong is the evidence? I can usually get that from looking at the graphs and the statistics, et cetera, et cetera. So that's basically a mini review. Um, then we send the paper out to review. So yes, that takes a lot of time. Um, we synthesize, we try to synthesize the reviewer's report. So to highlight the parts that are most important for a revision, or if we cannot um, consider a revision, explain why, you know, and repeat, repeat until you finally get to hopefully um, an acceptance principle. And at that stage, we do more of what people usually consider editors doing, which is we provide more suggestions for actually how the paper is written. This depends a lot on the editor in the field. So I tend to provide more suggestions and am more engaged in the revision, this final revision process. Um, but I think that's also because the papers I handle are coming from areas that have not historically been well represented in nature. So the papers are in quite a different format from the beginning. So whereas some of my colleagues, since their communities are very familiar with the nature format, their papers are really structured that way already. Um, and so that's where I sort of say, you know, you might want to highlight this or put this in the supplemental, supplementary information. So it's not like I'm line editing, editing the English, but rather the content saying like, this is, you know, how we need to get the story streamlined so that it appeals to a broad audience. These are the supplemental facts that can be put elsewhere, etc. Hmm. Is uh, you you mentioned something that I also uh, noticed a while ago, and until then hadn't realized just how strong it was. So, um, I, I mean, you just mentioned that from some other disciplines, they might be more represented in nature. So I, you know. I happen to have read quite a lot of nature papers in the things I do, uh, because a lot of this game theory, so a lot of evolutionary game theory is in there. So for me, it always seemed like, oh, yeah, like these, you know, it's well represented or whatever. And until I then, one of our uh, colleagues uh, got sent nature every week. And then so I, it was right next to my desk, basically, and I just looked through it. And only then did I realize like, oh, this is like, at least it felt like it 80% physics and chemistry. Um, and it was really like every, I don't know, fourth episode that would be like what i don't know yeah but like you know it would be very rare if there was an episode episode issue um, issue thank you it would be very rare if there was an issue where there was more than one article that was even vaguely related to what i was doing yeah i'm just curious why is that and um yeah i guess how i mean yeah you said you kind of want to have uh, i think you tweeted a few days ago you you want to have more you know, behavioral studies and especially also studies with a kind of real world application. So how do you, how do you also go about doing that? Because, you know, you're not writing the papers and sending them to nature. That's, that's a really good question. And it follows really well. Um, so the other thing that I spend a lot of time doing is outreach. Um, so back in the day when I didn't work from home, which was <laughs> right, um, a bit over two years ago, we would actually go out and do site visits. So that's where we contact people who are doing cool research that we want to hear more about. And we go and we visit and we say, tell, tell us about your research and sort of do a version of academic speed dating where they tell us about the research. We tell them how we think as editors and there's a sort of a back and forth dialogue. 
so that they understand what we're looking for and we understand the field. We also go to conferences because, again, we get whatever we get. So whatever papers are coming in, we get. But that's not necessarily representative of the world. Those are, That's representative of the people who submit to us. So it's important for us to go to conferences to see what the communities are doing, to see the places that we're not representing and how what we can do to attract those papers um, and how we can grow in those ways. So there is a lot of outreach. And then there's, of course, desk outreach, right, where where you just send emails. So that's what I do mostly now. So when I see a cool paper, I'll write to the authors and say, this is a really cool paper. If you didn't know, nature considers these papers. So if you ever have any questions, you know, drop me a line and I'd be happy to chat. Um, right. And then there's tweeting where we say like, hey, this is a paper we published. We want more. So, you know, we do that. That's another aspect of the job is trying to stay on top of the field at large, not just our submissions and and to increase the representation. Um, there's one other thing that we can do for that. So there's there are reviews and perspectives. So reviews, right, being the standard review of the article, the perspective being a synthesis of the literature, but to have a particular opinion. And so something else that we do is we think about what types of reviews and perspectives, or we think about um, fields that are of interest, and we commission reviews and perspectives. So that means we actually do go out and we say, hey, this is something we're interested in. Would you be willing to write us a review or a perspective? These still go through peer review, but basically that means you know that they will go to peer review. And with reviews and perspectives, they can, of course, be rejected after peer review. But because it's not, there is no such thing as a fatal flaw in the, the data and the design, it usually can make it through. So that's another way that we try to attract fields. Because then once that reviewer perspective is published, then people will hopefully see it and say, oh, well, Nature published this, then they're they're interested. Okay, I had no idea that. Yeah, journals did that, that directly. Also, like contacting. I mean, I guess I knew that. Like sometimes you have invited reviews and that kind of stuff. But yeah, no, I did did that. I mean, do you sometimes see a preprint and go like, "Hey guys, do you want to submit this to Nature?" Or is that yes? Uh, yes because we do we really do. okay. So actually, I don't know if you saw. Um, recently, we published a, a paper from the UK Biobank on the the changes to the human brain after being infected with COVID. Yeah, I, I didn't read it, but I saw it came out like a month ago or something. Mm -hmm. or two, so or? that one, that one, I f I saw in Med Archive, and I wrote to the authors and I said, if you haven't submitted it, please submit to us. <laughs> and they probably said, okay, we'll do yeah. that. <laughs> yeah. So so that's that's an example of yeah that type of outreach. Um, I guess that would be called outreach, right? I don't know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that must be a pretty cool email to get. Yeah, yeah, I, I hope so. I hope so. So this was great. Um, so yeah, we ended up up publishing it. But yeah, that is the thing. So there are there are times when I see a preprint and I'll say, yeah, that's one. Basically, I say, I've read the preprint and we will send it out to review if you submit to us because I can make the editorial judgment already. Yeah. I guess one question I still had about uh, your kind of journey as an editor is what exactly is kind of the difference between being at Nature Communications, Nature Human Behavior, and now at Nature, like for you, like why did you make the switch? Was it a more senior position or was it you wanted to be more, I don't know if, yeah, I'm just curious, like kind of why, uh, yeah, what the difference is between being an editor, let's say at Nature Communications and Nature Human Behavior? 
Uh, it's a funny question because our HR asked me the same question because they're like, but you're you're staying in the same role. What's wrong? And I was like, nothing's <laughs> wrong. <laughs> nothing's wrong. They're just different yeah. journals. Um, so there are a few differences. Um, there, there's a difference in terms of the amount of freedom and flexibility you have. And there's a difference in terms of what you cover, and there's a difference in terms of um, the impact that you have. I would say those are the things. So when I started at Nature Communications, I I really enjoyed it. I had a great time at Nature Communications. Um, But in that case, it was really, my role was really publishing primary research. There was some reviews, perspective, comments, but it was really going for primary research and publishing much more of it, which meant, though, as you've heard, like I, I am very engaged in all of the papers I've handled. It means that there was just sort of less time that I could spend because I was publishing a lot more. Nature Human Behavior, I moved because in what we call the research journal, so that's not nature communications, but anything else that's like nature something. So nature human behavior, nature neuroscience, nature genetics, nature medicine, in those journals. The editors also cover what we call front half, and that's the more journalistic content. So all of a sudden, you start to be able to write editorials, write research highlights, deal with comments, worldviews. You get to do special issues of the journal. So there's a lot more, let's say, of your personal your personal strategy or interest that goes, and you develop a lot more skills. So at Nature Communications, they, they've expanded, but because they are this huge multidisciplinary journal, you don't have, you know, a special issue on something. You can put together a collection, but like everybody is publishing everything. Um, so there's just less room for all of these things. At Nature Human Behavior, because we were going for this specific audience, you could really pursue a topic you were interested in. So when I was there, I worked on um, a paper that was looking at the reproducibility of experiments in science and nature. And that was really cool because what I did in that, so right, we worked with the authors on the paper, but then from each of the authors whose experiments didn't replicate, we commissioned comments um, on their opinion as to why it didn't replicate. And that was really eye-opening to me to understand more about replication, to understand, you know, what may have changed, what we are how much replication depends on how we define it, etc. So I thought that that was really cool. So basically, we put together a collection. I wrote an editorial about it. We um, had somebody else write an opinion piece. Um, we had, you know, all of these comments. We put all of these things together. So that was something that, for example, wasn't possible at Nature Communication. So I felt at Nature Human Behavior, I was really able to yeah, learn more about handling these more opinion-based comment formats, putting together these types of projects within the journal. You also get to choose the cover. You know, there's like, there's just lots more involvement and you feel like you are putting out a product as a team instead of just contributing papers to this like larger journal. Okay. Yeah, it's funny. I didn't know that. I didn't know that you uh, also did that. It seems like I've read quite a few things you've edited without <laughs> realizing it, because I read that article and I think one of the responses. And uh, yeah, yeah, okay. Okay, here's a kind of silly question, but I'm still not entirely sure what niche communications exactly is. Um, 
so that kind of what's the, maybe i don't know maybe we can do this by by contrast kind of what's the difference between nature nature communications and scientific reports because they all seem to me to be publishing uh, research from all disciplines or more or less all disciplines um is it is it just a, a ranking of prestigiousness or what's what exactly is the difference here with, between having an a research article published in any of those three yeah so so sort of um prestigiousness so let me start at the start at the bottom actually so i'll start with scientific reports scientific reports they look to publish solid research that means it has to be technically sound but novelty doesn't matter at all so as long as the research is judged to be correct, they will publish it. It is also, as you said, it's really wide um, in terms of breadth. It publishes, you know, it publishes all topics within within the natural sciences, natural and physical sciences. Their model of doing so, though, is different. So they have a chief editor and they have some in-house editors, but the majority of the work is done by external academic editors. Once you get to the level of nature communications, you have the same thing that it's an open access broad journal, but now you have dedicated editors. So that means you have people like myself who are professional editors now who all have at least a PhD who are working on this. The result is that you get, you get let's say, speedier, hopefully speedier service and more consistent editorial bar. You also have strategy and just much more crosstalk between the different disciplines. So for example, you know, let's take cognitive neuroscience. Let's say you have something that has, you know, a complex sort of graph theory approach. At Nature Communications, you have colleagues who are in physics, who are in math, who you can talk to about it. So you can say, hey, like, I don't get the math could you please look at this paper and tell me what you think? That's not something that you get at scientific reports because it's just going to whoever, you know, whichever academics they choose. There's not this sort of crosstalk. Um, there's also not the same type of strategy. So at Nature Communications, you will actually do an analysis of the literature to figure out what areas you want to concentrate on, etc. So there's journal strategy in there as well. Yeah, so, so you have a much higher impact factor though that is only one, you know, it's not something that we're supposed to talk about. It's not the end-all be-all, but the point is the the articles tend to be of better quality, meaning that they, they tend to be more rigorous, not just correct, but more rigorous and tell more of a story and have more of a scientific impact. So that's, you know, the difference between nature communications and nature, uh, sorry, and scientific reports. Then when you get up to the level of nature, um, so there's one difference is that it's not open access. There is now an open access option, but it's a subscription-based journal that comes out every week in issues. Also multidisciplinary, but publishes much less. So again, the idea is that you're publishing less so that the, the papers themselves are stronger and there's a lot more editorial work that goes into those fewer papers that end up getting published. So it's selectivity. Um, and then in nature, it's also the fact that like what I was talking about with the difference between nature communications and nature human behavior, having much more agency as an editor to put things together, you have that at nature as well. So for example, at nature, I did a special issue on computational social science. Um, so that is even though, you know, you are technically this big, huge, broad journal, because we are publishing much less, you can have special issues 
that are really focusing on one of the topic. And the cool thing there is that you're getting exposure to all of the different fields versus in nature human behavior where you are just exposed to the people who care about human behavior. That's where the change comes in terms of impact that I was mentioning before. And then I guess, yeah, the the handling is the same, right? It's professional editors who are handling it, a lot of discussion, you know, a lot of back and forth with the referees, etc. So is it more, so kind of what, what differentiates an article that would be rejected in nature, but accepted in nature communications? Is it just, uh, it's not quite as exciting or something or, yeah, I mean, it's of course difficult to say in, in the abstract, but. Yeah, yeah. right. And I, I can't call people out whose, whose papers have done that. Um, <laughs> yeah. So there are, there are basically three things that can differ. So one is the, the scope of the question. So nature tries to get at the very broad questions that are going to appeal as much as possible across disciplines. So quite a broad question. Then there's nature communications is more specific. So there's the first one is the question, right? Is it something that's going to interest not just people like let's take Hugo Spears' paper, right? On navigation. That's really cool because you get into the whole nature nurture debate. You get into the people who care about, you know, navigation. You get into the people who care about the brain, even though they don't have brain data there. It's a really cool finding that has lots of follow-ups. They also have the street network entropy. So it goes all into complexity science, right? So you get people who are looking at networks and physics who are interested. So it's a very broad question. So that's, that's an example of the broad scope of the question. So it could, it could be more specific for nature communications. Point two is the strength of evidence. So that doesn't mean just, you know, do the data support what you're saying? It's how much of the story you're telling. So an example could be, let's say you observe something cool that somebody hasn't observed before. That could be enough for nature communications, potentially. But at nature, that wouldn't be enough. You would have to say why you're observing it or what, like, what is driving it or what isn't driving it. That could be enough, too. And what it means. So, again, it's the amount of the story that you're telling. Okay, so it's not just like having an effect, but explaining it also. Or... Yeah, exactly. So, like, how, how, yeah, I guess if you think of it as sort of like a brick, you know, to build a house, this is like the nature paper is supposed to be like the big foundational brick. And then the nature communications paper is a smaller, it's still, you know, contributing a big part of the house, but it's, it's a bit of a less uh, foundational type of brick. So that's a difference. And then I guess the the advance over over the over previous work, right? How much of an advance it is? Um, though I have to say, advance. I don't like the word because it means that it should be like novel, and I don't think that's always true. So we consider an evidence based advance. So if you have a field where you know half of the papers say A and half of it say B. But if you look at it, it's because everything has been based on small sample sizes and has issues. And you finally do the experiment to come up with whether it's A or B. You know, it's not novel to say A or B. What's novel is that you finally have the evidence to say what it is. So when I say advance, that can also be an advance, um, right? The, an evidence-based advance. Um, but again, it's the size of the advance, right? So if you, you know, demonstrate that this is true, whatever it is for English-speaking people, maybe that's nature communications, but maybe you need a global population for nature. Yeah, I was curious. I wanted to ask about that point because you said something along those lines also in this this talk um, that I, I watched, 
where he said, you know, you can't publish something in H and just have like a few college students and then say like this is about humans or whatever, right? So I mean, I mean, Hugo's study again is the is the best example because they had a worldwide study of a sample of all sorts of people, right? I'm just curious, like, how representative does it have to be? I mean, does everything have to be representative sample in multiple countries or, yeah? No, it doesn't. I mean, what we look at, and this is true across levels, I guess, is that you have strong evidence to answer the question that you are posing. So in Hugo's paper, the question is, you know, how does the environment influence your navigational abilities? To make the answer to that, question interesting it has to be about humans generally you know if i tell you that like a specific school you know a specific people who went to this specific boarding school in this specific town had this it would be of less interest because you just you you don't know um the answer to that question to be interesting must be must be a larger sample but let's say your question is something more specific about you know, human cognition or the brain. And it's more about the function of a specific area in the brain doing something. And you have no reason to believe that there is a difference between like my brain, your brain, and whoever else's brain in this particular way, like you're getting more at the mechanism. You you don't need to have a big sample to answer that question. You don't need to have a representative sample from all different things. So again, it depends on what the question is, what would make the strongest answer. So it it really depends. <laughs> um, and then the other yeah. thing, you know, that you mentioned before is that one of the other points that I would like to, or one of the the areas that I'd like to champion is are those research projects that have real real world impact. And the thing is that that is different in different countries. So you don't necessarily expect the results per se to generalize because there are just so many contextual factors. But showing the real world impact in a country of need is really important. And if you read through the paper, there's also these sort of general scientific nuggets that can be gleaned. One of the examples is I recently published a paper by Josh Blumenstock um, and colleagues that was using a combination of, well, he was taking satellite, satellite images and cell phone data and using a machine learning algorithm that had been trained on cell phone usage data in Togo to basically allocate COVID-19 relief aid. So, you know, who, who was being targeted for relief aid? And they compare that to what the government was doing before, which was basically a coarse-grained approach that was just taking sort of neighborhood wealth estimates. And they show that they can really do much better at targeting specific areas. Now, this is a very specific finding, right? It's during COVID. We don't know if it's going to work during another pandemic, and we're not going to go wait for waiting for another one to find out. It's in the country of Togo, not in all different countries, but it affected millions of people's lives. So there's the there's the cool thing. But then there's also sort of a scientific insight there, which is the proof of concept that you can do this. And then two, the idea that looking at a coarse grained level of zip code, you know, in research generally isn't sufficient if you want to get the best possible results. So there you have, you have a bit of a scientific principle that you can say has broad impact because so many people use basically census data 
you know, to estimate wealth levels in their research. So there's a sort of a larger message in there, but the main data and main advance is, you know, specific to a country and a context. But again, it has that real world impact. So that is also something that we value quite strongly. Yeah, I guess it also fits with the thing you mentioned earlier about, you know, it's it's a, a big study that that's, that's very difficult to pull off, just not technically exactly, but like from the organization, I'm assuming, and to be allowed to do it and all these kind of things. So, Right, exactly. And and then the hope is that the, you know, there's a scientific impact based on the specific aspects, but then there's also this practical aspect, which we, which we care about a lot as well, right? That also getting the attention of policymakers and understanding that there are these approaches that can be used to be more effective in, in allocating relief aid, you know, and try, try it in different places. So different places in different contexts, because there is always the need for distribution of relief aid. Okay. Yeah, that's pretty cool. Um, I want to, uh, I guess there's kind of like two main kind of topics I want to talk about at least briefly. Uh, one is the kind of, you know, how to improve your submissions and make the life of the editor easier. And the other's kind of, if we want to call it grandly, the future of publishing and the kind of changes you want to see. Um, so just briefly to the um, submissions and making the life of the editor easier. One thing that I feel like is probably, how should we say, where there's a big difference between how important it is and how much you actually read about it, where the difference is pretty large, is for cover letters. Because it feels like the first time I read a cover letter is when I had to submit a paper and told my supervisor, wait, what do I put in the cover letter? And then he sent me like a few past examples of ones he had, right? Whereas, you know, writing the paper is something I'd been, I'd been reading papers for years. Um, but then it seems to me that the, the, it's difficult. I don't know how important the cover letter is, whether it's something that editors that can make or break a submission or it's just like, whatever, let me read the paper. Yeah, I'm just curious, like, uh, it's such a generic question, but what is the cover letter for exactly? And to maybe make it slightly more specifically in this, this talk uh, I saw, I think you said that for you at Nature, because you have such a, because you get so many different submissions from so many different topics, um, that for you it really helps if the authors kind of put into context what the study does, because you just can't know every single area that you're dealing with. Whereas someone at a much more niche journal, um, where the people might actually know the research area very well, um, so yeah, what, what's a cover letter for? <laughs> yeah, that's that's a good question, and I think that that part that you alluded to is is important like it it depends on the journal and the editor what i see the cover letter is is it's your chance to talk directly to the editor so the paper you've composed is you know one to convince the editor to send it out to review but two to convince the reviewers you know your potential reviewers and three to convince you know the whole audience whom you hope to reach and it's done in a very formulaic way, right? Like scientific papers, they really follow a template, potentially different templates according to different fields. But it, it's not like you don't have a lot of chance to really say in your own words why the research is cool. You say it in the words that of science, essentially, but you don't use your own your own words. The reason what I like about the cover letter is it's your chance to speak directly to me to say like why you like this research and why you think it would be a good fit for the journal. And that's useful because some papers are very hard to read and really understand what the main conclusions are. 
And sometimes the cover letter can help pull those out. So you start to see, oh, like this is really what the paper is showing. It's really hard to get to that just because sometimes papers get really lost in the details, right? People get really focused on, you know, this particular figure and then they get into all of the details and you forget how it fits into the main story. But if you're fo forced to write something in plain English, not scientific English, that explains what's so cool about it, um, often that can help it come out. So for me, I like the cover letter for, I think a cover letter should say, be two things. One, it should be, you know, you talking to the editor to educate them about your field, because you know more about your field than we do. Like we, we read all fields, so it means that we're not as in-depth. So you know, educate us about your field and tell us why this paper is really cool. I also find it helpful to see that you've thought about where you're submitting it, that you're not just submitting your paper to wherever with a standard cover letter, but you've actually thought about whether or not this is a fit. So, you know, saying, you know, we, we submit to nature because, or, you know, we think that this is XYZ, this seems to fulfill what we see published in nature, that's why. You know, just something that gives us an idea that you, you're not just basically, you know, picking at random. Um, so those are the two things that I like in a cover letter. Um, again, though, the, the amount of information and what it serves, I think, is different for different editors and probably within different publishing models. I've only worked in as a professional editor, I've never worked as an academic editor. Um, you know, I'd written papers and helped with reviews like in my career, but I hadn't served as an academic editor before I took this position. So I don't know how it is if you are, yeah, if, if you're in that position, if a cover letter then is even more helpful. I can imagine it is because you don't have as much time to go through the paper. <laughs> um, yeah. And to look for reviewers, but yeah, for 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 me, I f I would say those those things like your your chance to talk directly to the editor and explain the paper and its fit to the journal. And it doesn't matter if that information, you know, I mean that so that's going to overlap uh, with with the abstract quite a bit, right? I mean, like from the first time I wrote, it's like, am I just not kind of repeating what I wrote in the abstract already, just with less detail? Um, but it's just a. Uh, yeah, maybe a slightly less formulaic, as you said, a less formulaic and kind of more personal way of saying like, this is the thing that's really cool, which you might not say like that in a paper. Exactly. Um, and often what I'll do is I'll read through the, the cover letter quickly first. I read the paper and then I check if my notes, like when I, you know, usually in my notes, I'll like start my evaluation by saying like the main contribution of this paper is, and I'll sort of like summarize what, I think the main contribution is. And I'll check to see, does that match the cover letter? And if it doesn't match it, I'll think, uh-oh, did I misread it? And I'll go back and see if I've missed something. Or conversely, if I think that the authors are, you know, overselling their results, which also happens. But that is also sort of my check, am I getting the paper? Which which I don't know, I, I find is helpful because sometimes, like I said, things, what you think is the main advance might actually be the main advance, but it's not highlighted in the way that a naive reader will find it. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether this question is very similar to, pre to the previous one I had, but kind of one thing I was just curious about, like just common errors that people have when they submit a scientific article, some things that you see over and over again. I guess, again, you are specific 
maybe somewhat specific to having worked at nature communications, human behavior, and nature. Uh, but yeah, just something where I don't know, yeah, that you see over and over again, and would like people not to do. Right. So again, this is yeah, this is based on my experience at the nature journals. Um, attention to detail is important. We are human, and as editors, we really try not to be biased by things. But if you have made like really obvious stupid mistakes in, let's say, the cover letter or the submission, it's like really hard or... to then imagine what. Like spelling, or what do you mean? Like um, what are stupid yeah, well, errors? Okay, so context? the wrong, like if you, yeah, if you if you get the name wrong, so you misspell the editor's name, if you, you know, put the wrong journal, um, those sorts of things. Like we try not to care, right, to say whatever. But the thing is that when you see that there's lack of attention to detail there, you think, uh-oh, did this spill across to the research? And even though I always try to put that out of my mind, it's hard not to think like, well, how, you know, it's hard, it's hard to erase having seen that. So, um, yeah. So, so for example, yeah, if you, for example, upload a paper that still has all of the track changes or the comments on it, or, you know, those sorts yeah. of things, um, it just makes you think, well, if you did that with this submission, like, what did you do when you were processing the data? Um, so it's just, yeah, attention to detail, I think, is the is something that matters, even though we try we try not to care about it. The other thing that I care most about is actually the amount of the amount of detail you provide in statistics and methods. I think a lot of people think nature papers are succinct, so you shouldn't provide all the information, but then it's impossible to evaluate the paper. So it's really important in submissions that you have the statistical details. You don't just say like, this is more than that, because who knows what that means. So we ask whenever possible that people don't use qualifying language, but rather they put the numbers, you know, you quantify when possible. Because if you show me, you know, that whatever is 10 and whatever is five, I can see what that difference is relative to the distribution. But if you say this is more and this is less, I have no idea I have no idea how big the difference is, where it fits, you know, relative to the distribution, et cetera. But if you provide full statistical details, you know, descriptive or if you're actually, you know, doing frequentist or non-frequentist approaches anything, please include all of the details <laughs> because without them, I have no idea how strong the claim you're making is. So, um, yes, statistical details. And the other thing is, when we accept a paper, we ask that the figures be uploaded separately. But until acceptance, having inline figures is the best because otherwise you have to have multiple documents open, you know, to be able to see the pictures at the same time. Because otherwise you scroll down and then you lose your place and then you don't know where you are and it's a big pain. So then you have to have like all of these documents open to flip back and forth. Um, and it's a pain for the reviewers because they have to do it too. It's a pain for the editors. It's a pain for everybody. So inline figures is a really are wonderful. Like, please keep your figures in line and just take them out. It's really easy to take them out. Just, you know, take them out at the end, but keep them in line in your submissions until you get to accept. <laughs> um, Good. Yeah, I mean, just makes it things. should also be less work for the authors, right? Because you could just, at least I write my manuscripts and have the figures in there rather than having them as separate documents. Exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. So inline figures are great. 
Yeah. And personally, I also like, I also like numbered references. I find it much easier to follow numbered references than named references. But that's probably specific to the journal also, right? Because that is specific to to the journal, but it's also, I feel like it's also reading it from, from an editorial perspective. Imagine you're not in the field and so you don't know the papers. And so you see like Abbott et al. 2015. You're not going to remember that. You'll remember the number one much more easily, right? So it's like if I'm if I'm trying to figure out like how something fits in the literature, I can't tell if you're referencing the same or different papers if it's just like Abbott et al. 2015, blah 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 et al. Like because because those aren't things that I know and I just can't keep them in my head. Numbers are much easier to keep in your head, so you can see like oh we're coming back to you know references one two three all the time. Like that's much easier to keep in your head if you don't know. So I think it is it is definitely specific to the journal. We like those ones, but I also feel like for somebody who doesn't know the field, it's easier to sort of see where and how it fits in the literature if you're dealing with numbers just because they're easier to remember a few numbers versus a bunch of names and a bunch of dates. Yeah. Um yeah, maybe as as a kind of uh, uh last topic, we can talk about the future which is always so easy to predict. But okay, I have one question first and this is a personal pet peeve I have of, of scientific articles. Um and so this is first a question and second uh, I hope this changes at some point, uh, unless there's a good reason not to. And that is, so I remember I once uploaded a preprint, and I the the name of the document was something like final submission PDF or whatever, right? And I was like mortified that I gave it like a non meaningful name that it wasn't like you know Cooper Smith or something, you know the year or something like that. And then you know on the same day I downloaded. Well, I don't know what journal it was, but let's say I downloaded a journal from Nature, uh, um, a PDF from Nature. The name will be something like S3289, you know, and just like 20 different letters or something, right? And that's sometimes I have in my downloads folder, you know, I have all sorts of PDFs. I have no idea what they are, where they're from or anything like that. So one question is just like, why don't journals give their PDFs some sort of name that you can recognize as someone who downloaded the paper um you, the only thing i can tell basically is the publisher because you know elsevier has a format nature has a format but yes yeah, so, so why is why is that that way so uh that last part is you hit the nail on the head there is a disconnect between editors and publishing so our job is to engage with the scientific community and to evaluate scientific content and to hopefully help improve science once we hit accept you know, the paper leaves our hands, never to be seen again. Not really, but almost. Um, so that means I have no idea why the downloads go as the downloads do. I have no idea of the, you know, what made them choose whatever formatting. I, like, we play no part in that. Um, so I can't, I don't know. I, in fact, I don't even okay. know who I could approach to ask. <laughs> like it's, it's that far removed, you know, okay. like I could ask the chief editor. I know that she doesn't know, but maybe she knows who potential, but it's like so far away from anything that we do that I, I just, I don't even know where to begin maybe production. <laughs> I don't know. Does production do that? Like, I, yeah. I really don't know. Um, okay. yeah. So hmm. maybe that's. I'll, I'll do, it looks like someone has to do some sort of investigative journalism here to find out who names the PDFs. Exactly, and how all of that works. I mean, maybe the platform, 
Like, oh, I, I really have no idea. But I agree. It's really annoying for me, too, because I also download our articles and I also can't find them. So I end up just going online and searching because like, I have no idea what what S3509 is. Yeah. Okay, good. Um, or not good. I don't know. <laughs> I yeah. guess if you don't yeah. know. So unfortunately, that's, that's something I, I can't help with. I can, yeah, try to follow up, but I'm I'm not really sure how. <laughs> okay, yeah. Um, so yeah, but a more kind of important uh, discussion about the future of publishing is, I mean, you already mentioned that you try and get certain subject areas into publishing more. But I'm curious also to hear about the kind of, you know, there's there's lots of people who who kind of really try and change the scientific publishing, and you know, I mean, some fields, for example, I guess, largely use preprints anyway, and like articles aren't even that important anymore. Um, then uh, I talked to Chris Chambers, um, who is very in favor of like saying like let's <laughs> let's get rid of journals, or I don't know whether I'm saying that too strong, but at least um, he. Um, at the end of our conversation seemed to say like why do we even need like journals we can just do it differently or separately uh i guess maybe the first question is kind of like yeah do we need journals and uh then secondly kind of what kind of changes in terms of like i don't know like for example will register reports be at nature ever or uh these kind of questions like different kind of formats or making papers more interactive for to put them in the 21st century or yeah um yeah so let's see sorry what was the first thing that you asked yeah, so again? that was a lot of questions yeah um and i have to remember it myself yeah kind of oh, 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 what do journals add that were you wouldn't get without them kind of okay yeah why right. why would it what even in the future why should there be journals basically from your perspective my my answer is a little bit of an analogy um and this this isn't something that i follow in real life but like we have brands for everything right we have brands for cars we have brands for for clothes we have brands for everything that we consume um and one of the reasons we have brands is because we believe that they provide some kind of stamp of prestige and or quality those are the two main reasons the reasons that we don't just have no brands is because you need some kind of help when you go to the whatever store you want to go and you see all of the different options of sweaters or of, you know, foodstuffs, restaurants, I mean, everything. We have some kind of system that helps us decide, is it worth, you know, do we want to spend more money for this thing? And if so, why? Um, in the case of scientific articles, it's it's something similar. Um, it's the curation in a way. So I don't know, I get paid to read scientific articles for a living. So I read a lot of them. I read a lot more than any researcher because you have to be doing the research as well. Um, yet I touch, like I barely dent the scientific corpus. There's so much science being published. So if you didn't have journals and you just had this huge like preprint server where everybody deposited it, I mean, how, how would you ever find anything and know if it was good? You know, when I look at the amount of submissions I get, I mean, just the, the curation in a way is something that I think is very valuable because, like I said, there's just so much output and then it's hard. Like, imagine you went to a store and like all of the sweaters in the world were there. Like, what would you do? It's so much easier if you have different stores that have different names and then you're like, oh, you know, this store fits me well. I like the quality, like I'm going to this store. Um 
similar with journals, right? You say, okay, this journal publishes like the things that I like, it's good quality, I'm going to sign up for their newsletter and stay informed here because you can't stay informed with everything. So um, the the curation and the prestige, um, and I guess for the same reason that, you know, we keep having brands and we keep having different stores, even if the different stores sell all of the same things, I think the same thing will happen. The same thing is true of of journals. Like we still have so many um, chains of stores that have like different tiers similar to journals, right? Like, isn't it Gap has Old Navy, they have Gap, they have Banana Republic. They all make clothes, all of them. They all make the same kind of clothes, but they are different tiers of said clothes, right? We support that and and we support different journals as well. So I I... I don't know. That I think is an important an important service and I think it would be very hard the amount of time you would have to spend to like parse the literature to get something meaningful if it was just all a big dump would be difficult. Yeah, or well, I guess then you I guess there has to be some sort of curation otherwise it might be people who tweet a lot about it or people who yeah whatever. I guess it's just going to be a different kind of form um curation. Right. So then the thing is that if you're doing the curation, I mean, isn't that sort of what journals are? They're just curating into a title of a journal. Yeah. Um, and uh, maybe as a final question or kind of, yeah, kind of how do you think about changing? I mean, whether it's even necessary to change like the format of a research paper um, or um, so is that something that like people in nature think about? Do they consider whether they want to have registered reports is that something that other journals can do or yeah how do you so yes so yes for you know for registered reports i'd really like registered reports to come to nature it's something that i'm working on so um you know we'll we'll see how that goes um it just takes a lot of work to do something like that um you know and i'm busy reading papers at the same time so Sorry, what so. is the work there just briefly because i have what I don't is know, the like, work from for... the outside it seems like well I guess the editor has to do it slightly differently, but it's still getting a paper, sending it to reviewers. Yeah. So broadly, it's change in an institution. So if you want change, you have to convince people that the change is worthwhile. So you would have to first convince everybody that this is a worthwhile thing to consider registered reports. And then you'd have to think of all of the guidelines around it. So you would say, is this going to be for all the disciplines that nature covers? because nature covers a lot more than most of the journals that consider registered reports, right, which are primarily in like neuroscience psychology. So would this, you know, apply to all of the physical sciences, chemists, right? If not, where would you draw the line? How would you categorize your papers? Where would you say this is, this isn't? So you have to have all of this clear. Then you have to figure out, you know, in your guide to authors, make it clear what you do and don't consider within the space of registered reports, right? There's all sorts of options. For example, are you going to consider secondary data or is it just primary data? If you're considering registered reports on secondary data, how can you be sure that people haven't looked at the data already? La la la. So lots of lots of things that need to be ironed out before you can even start to consider. So you have to convince the people. Then you have to iron out all of the details, and then you have to do the implementation, which again goes into the publisher's hands. So that means that in the system, they need to create they. I see, I don't know who they is. They is some <laughs> mysterious people have to do something so that when you submit, there's an option for you to say registered report. So, you know, whoever 
figures out the system has to be able to show that. And then that whole thing has to be different because with a registered report, right, you have an acceptance principle and then you have literally years before an acceptance. So it has to somehow be in like a different system that doesn't screw it up because that can't happen in the anyway. So it has to go through all of those details. Yeah. So it's, it's a bunch of work. And then you have to, you know, you have to have all of the letters together. So you have to make sure that you have your guide to authors. You have to make sure that you have all of your letters to referees. You have to be sure that you have, you know, everything, everything clear. You have to have it in the system. So whatever the decision letters then have to be uploaded into the system so that you can trigger the proper decision letters. You have to explain to the referees. I mean, Somebody's got to do all those letters. Somebody's got to upload them all. Somebody's got to make sure that the system works. So there's there's quite a bit of work. Um, okay, but it sounds like it's something that's in progress. Uh, even if it, it's a long progress, that's going to take a while. Right, right. Well, it's something that there's definitely interest in. So I'm, I'm, you know, I'm hopeful. I'm optimistic um, that it's something that that will happen. But you know, I can't say anything until until it does because who knows. Um, but it is something that people are interested in. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's cool. And, and yeah. same goes for like, you know, different types of formats and different cool things that we can do. There's definitely a lot of interest in it, you know, from the editor's state. But as I said, we deal with science and there's a whole separate team of people who deal with the implementation. So there's all these things that we want to do, but, you know, how it then gets implemented just is is something that we don't know and takes a lot of players and so we can bring it up and then you know slowly there is change that comes to the to the format you know and it it does change you know we we now have extended data figures so we can have many more data figures we now have the option of um uploading like the raw data behind your figures that gets integrated into that so you can see the the data you know there there are more and more things um and there's definitely a lot of things that we would like to see as editors but again there's just so many steps and most of our time is spent in the science and i would say the reason that we are editors is that we we like the science so you know for me i i don't like the publishing like i don't like the the nitty-gritty of the practical parts of publishing i like being an editor because you're involved with the science so also, I'm just not drawn towards tasks that take, I do things, I do, I do, you know, <laughs> I, I am involved in a bunch of publishing related projects, but it's not, it's not the thing that makes me happy and makes me want to go to work. So, um, I, yeah, I yeah. guess I also just underestimated like how much of a colossal bureaucracy almost, um, especially something like Nature Publishing Group or Springer, Springer Nature or whatever it is, um, it's, yeah, it's probably a bit, it's a bit more complicated than just you get a manuscript and then you say yes, no. Right, exactly. Um.